0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Things Like That podcast. I am your host, Allie Lieberts, and I am here today with Courtney Young, um, one of my good friends that I met through one of our mutual friends. Um, and we just clicked, and we can rant about the same things. So I'm excited to have you her know, on You know, there today. are some
1: people that you just, like, truly know. Mm-hmm. I feel like the first conversation we had, I was like, this bitch my soulmate all right honestly
0: yes i mean because we really only talked through instagram like i keep forgetting yeah. we didn't meet until ashley's wedding so I'm like, insane yeah it felt like we were friends before that we were facetiming before that like we just yeah. clicked crazy um, how life works Yes, but the main thing we clicked over first is that we're both type twos on the Enneagram. So that's definitely something I want to talk to you about today. I um, can. Yeah. kind of the queen. Um, so just kind of starting with that, um, first tell us about yourself. What do you do? Who's Courtney? Yeah, so I'm
1: Courtney. Um, I'm the director of community engagement for a church that we refer to as Kindred UMC. Um, I also do like reception at a salon part-time for fun. Um, but one of my main jobs at church is hosting an Enneagram podcast, so I'm very, like, into the Enneagram. I know a lot about it. I would love to become an official coach one day, but that costs money, so, you know, maybe not so much, but um, I have a dog and a husband and kind of just love to hang out and drink good wine and watch The Bachelor and spend
0: time with people I love. Yes, you, like, I just see you as, I don't know, you're kind of just refreshing to me because you still are involved in church, but you're very, like, laid back and chill and you love living life. Like, you're just a good person to be around and I love it. Um, But yeah, tell us a little bit more about your journey with the Enneagram and finding your type and, because you've, I've seen so much growth in you from the Enneagram, so I'm excited to get into that. You're the best. Um, Yeah,
1: so I first found the Enneagram as a young college student. Um, And so the first thing I wanna like clarify is that the Enneagram is a motivation-based personality assessment. So it's all about why you do what you do. It's not a personality test. There are elements of personality that come into play with it, but that's not what it is. Um, But first found it young and in college, the reason I did that whole little tangent is because you commonly mistype um, when you look at it as a personality assessment. And <laughs> so when I first took the Enneagram, I mistyped as a one, which I'm definitely not a one. And I also mistyped as a seven, which I'm I'm not a seven. Like there
0: are definitely some seven personality
1: traits I yeah. have, but it, it, it ain't me.
0: I can uh, see the seven in you, like if it was a personality test, but in terms of it being like about your core self and motivation, I can definitely see why you're too.
1: Yeah. So, um, found the test, took the test, loved it, started
0: looking more into it. And one of the big things that
1: I found is that most people mistype when you just take the actual physical test. And the reason for that is because you're taking it as a personality test, right? So you take it just like you would Myers-Briggs or the Bear disc. There's so many different personality assessments. And a lot of times we take these tests as how we want ourselves to be or how we how we want to see ourselves rather than how we actually are um and also like if you are like me and you grew up in the church or your family dynamic or whatever like that can shift how you're going to respond on this as well so that's why most enneagram experts would say test is a great starting place take the test see what you get read into it if it doesn't fully identify with you then look at the list of motivations and fears and that's how you determine your actual Enneagram type because the test is only gonna get you so far. It's not a, it's not an end
0: all be all. So. Oh, so what, what made you, no, you're good. What made you realize you were a two? Like, when did it, when did you really step back and see that your core motivation was that you needed to be loved as opposed to the other core core ones? So,
1: um. So first of all, I I mentioned I mistyped twice. Um, First time I mistyped is a one. um, And that's because when my parents were going through a divorce and when I was early in college, I was very black and white. Um, There was no gray, very like, we have to find the truth in this. That was an active coping mechanism that I developed. Um, And So that mistype, I think, is because you can be a two-wing one, which I'm not at this current point in my life, but you can switch back and forth between your wings. So it doesn't surprise me at all that I was actively leading very heavily into my one wing as a stress response. Um, And then as a seven, like I'm a very fun, outgoing, energetic human being, which if you're just looking at the personality type of a type seven is what you'll hear a lot. They're very fun. They're very ambitious. They're the FOMO type. And I identify with a lot of the personality traits of a type seven, but the core motivation of um, wanting to be happy, wanting to be content, while that is something I value, isn't ultimately the thing that matters most to me. And what does matter most to me is my friendships and my relationships. And so the question I kind of ask myself is, well, okay, if I think I'm a seven and I want to be happy, I want to be content, what makes me happy and content? And I answered my own question by being like, oh, duh, like the people around me, my relationships, feeling valued, feeling cared for, um, feeling loved. And then I started reading type two and realized how much of a people pleaser I am. And the thing that turned me off from type two when I first took the assessment, is two things. One, um, a lot of times you'll hear people describe type twos as like, the people who will volunteer to do the dishes or who will clean up after you or the first to do the chores. That ain't me, sis. I've never been one to volunteer <laughs> to do chores. So I was like, mm-hmm but also type two is the most common mistype among Christian females Yeah. because women in the church are taught that they need to minimize themselves and uh, be there for everybody else all the time. And, so for me, I was kind of like, mm, is this what I, how I actually feel about myself, or is this what I have been told through the many different church circles that I have been a part of? And when I actually did the deep diving and did the work, it was like, okay, like, am I the first to volunteer to do the dishes? No, but that's not what a type two is. A type two is somebody who fears being unwanted, rejected, unloved, and that is me to a T.
0: Yes. How have you? And I know you've done a lot of work on yourself over time with this, but how did you first kind of see that manifesting in your relationships? Like being a a type two who didn't, you know, develop healthy boundaries yet. How were you in your relationships? Like how were you handling surviving that?
1: Um, Honestly, I was very self-minimizing. A lot. I was the kind of person who, because of what had happened in my family dynamic and with my dad and growing up, I just wanted my friends to love me. um, And I just wanted to be like the center of my friend groups. Like it really mattered to me that I was planning all the events and I was everybody's friend. And even though I wasn't necessarily like popular in high school per se, like I was absolutely probably one of the most social people you've ever met. Um, And so as I started to develop friendships and relationships, in college, and even up until probably a year or two ago, um, I realized I would minimize in little ways. And it would be things like, like, you might ask me where I want to go for dinner. And my response would be, whatever you want. I don't care. But I did care. Yeah, (laughs) I did care. And I did have an opinion. Or like, like, this is a great example. So this weekend, I was in Dallas with my brother and sister. And they wanted to go get Indian food, and I've never had Indian food before, and I was really nervous about it mm-hmm. because my brother and sister in law, my brother in particular, really likes out there things. Now, I know like Indian food doesn't seem like a crazy out there phenomenon for most people, but I don't like spicy food, and so they were like, Yeah, let's go get Indian food. Dah, dah, dah. And I was at first kind of like, Yeah, I go with the flow, cool, okay, but in the back of my head, I was having like, um like second thoughts about it. Like Mm -hmm. I was like this, I I feel anxious. Uh, What if I don't like any there? Am I being ridiculous? Should I just go with the flow? So I'm very proud of myself because we did still go to get Indian food, but I did vocalize my skepticism. And I said like, hey, I'm open to this, but I'm a little skeptical about it Mm -hmm. because I don't like spicy food. So there's a good chance I might not find something I like here. And they were totally, yeah, no worries. If you don't like something, we can go somewhere else. Like it's not that big of a deal. But even a few
0: years ago, I wouldn't have even said that. Right.
1: Yeah. I I would have just like, like,
0: let it happen. I feel like that seems like something so simple to other people, but to a type two, it literally puts you in such an anxious point where it feels like the end of the world to speak up about that because it genuinely feels like if you voice your opinion, people are going to be like, wow, like you're such a burden. And so just like little things are such wins for type twos. Um, Yeah. I get so worried that people are going to be mad at me all the time. mm -hmm. All the time. And my
1: husband will always be like, okay, what's the worst thing that happens if they're mad at you? And I can't even like think of a rational response. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. They just don't like me. And then I'm not loved. And then I'm rejected. And I'd spiral.
0: Yes. Spiral is the best way to put it. It's so easy. I feel like as a type two to spiral into feeling like, no one cares about you, which makes Mm -hmm. you almost minimize yourself more. Cause it's like, and no one wants me here anyway. So I'm just going to (laughs) disappear. Right. Like one of my biggest like things,
1: and if this is such, I get mad at myself for this being one of my biggest things, but I'm really working on not invalidating my own feelings right now. Um, and so like one of my biggest things that I'm hung up on is I've been a bridesmaid in so many weddings and that's great. And I love being there to support my friends and like, be a part of their day. But there's something in me that's a little jealous that I've never been a maid of honor for anybody mm. because I feel like I'm the best friend. Right. And like that's such a it's a petty like weird thing to be like hung up on, but I feel like something I find myself constantly coming back to is as a type 2, I feel like I'm always a good friend and people think they can run over me. And I also allow them to, but people will take advantage of that and expect for me to always be there. Um, And part of that is because I don't stick up for myself. I don't do anything that's risky in the relationship. I won't Mm -hmm. say, oh, I don't like this kind of food. Like, Mm -hmm. because I'm nervous, I'm not going to be the good friend anymore.
0: Right. No, I definitely don't see that as petty because I have those same, like, weird little things where it's like, well... Aren't I like their number one? Like, have I not done enough to like be their number one? Um, but something that I used to think of too, in terms of that was like when I really started thinking of how much of a, a people pleaser I am, I would think like, do people really like me, or do they just like that I'm just there and go with the flow with everything? Like, yeah. what do they genuinely like about me? And I feel like that really sparked me, kind of going off on my own and finding my you know own things and. Creating more boundaries because I'm like, I feel like most of those, especially in high school, like when I would just find myself in like certain groups, it's just like, I'm not really adding value here. Like I'm just saying yes to mm-hmm. everything. I'm not even being me. So, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's and such I feel a like a lot paradox. of times
1: you don't realize it. Exactly. You know, like. It's little things like, oh, I'm not going to stick up for the fact. I'm not going to vocalize the fact that I might disagree or have a different opinion mm-hmm. or I might not like something because if I vocalize it, then this person's going to be upset with me. Exactly. Like, and when you're constantly living like that, then you get to a point where it feels like, well, are any of my friendships real because I can't be honest with the people that I mm-hmm. am calling close friends? And that's sure. kind of when I was like, okay, well, we got to we got to work on that. And so I I did the hard thing, you know, at Kindred with Chris, one of the things that we talk about is um, you have to die to the thing that will literally destroy you in order to find freedom and healing and mm. new life and new purpose. And so one of the biggest journeys that I went through with that was what I call dying to the people pleasing. Mm. So like I hit a point in my own self-growth journey through one of our disciple groups where it was like, okay, like You are constantly self-minimizing. You are constantly beating yourself up for things that aren't your fault. You are constantly spiraling out of control, thinking about what people may or may not even be saying about you when the reality is you're thinking more about them than they're thinking about you Mm -hmm. by even like having this mental debate with yourself in your head. And so I decided that I was going to do my very, very, very best to start projecting more of myself into my relationships. Mm -hmm. And so that meant like distancing from people that I thought, I was close with and not like, ew, I don't want to talk to you, Mm -hmm. but just allowing myself to not always be the one to reach out immediately. Definitely. And like actually vocalizing when I didn't want to do something or didn't feel comfortable do something and um, loving, but also loving myself enough to set myself up for success. Mm -hmm. And it would be little things. It would be like, I'd be at a party and I didn't feel like, getting super crazy drunk and so I just wouldn't drink and it was fine or it would be like I don't know everybody wanted to go to a movie but I don't like scary movies so I wasn't gonna go and that was fine and it wasn't Bailey you're fine sorry my dog's (laughs) growling Um, it, it wasn't a big deal and so like giving myself that space to start to vocalize and be honest particularly about like my own church trauma. Um, which is a whole other conversation, but like being honest about that, talking about the realness of that and putting that out there, it certainly pushed some people away. And I got told that I was the crazy one and I was the one who had changed and blah, blah, blah. And that hurt. It wasn't an easy thing to like deal with, but it's because of that, that I've now found new friendships and new relationships where I can connect with people about real things. Like, I don't know, Allie, that you and I would be friends two years ago. Mm
0: Mm-hmm you know, and not because yeah. of you, but because of me. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, that's an awesome thing to work through. I'm really proud of you. Like, even just in the short time I've known you, like, just seeing you on Instagram, I just feel like you're really glowing and flourishing now. So I feel like you're definitely reaping what you've been sowing um, with setting those boundaries. Um, did you also feel like you noticed in the people-pleasing, you also almost have like a savior complex because I definitely do too where like you said you have to be the first to reach out like if I see something going Mm -hmm. wrong with someone it's like I'm going to be the one to like make them dinner and bring it over and I'm going to make them feel better when really that's not my job (laughs) like of course you can support your friends but fully leaving my issues to like dive into someone else's and ignoring my own I feel like I do that a lot too
1: yeah um we did a podcast with the director of CPE at a big hospital here in Florida um on our podcast and a phrase that she taught me that has done wonders for boundary setting and I'm trying to use it in my everyday life now is what's my work and what's your work
0: mm-hmm. meaning
1: like if somebody is upset with me and they haven't communicated that to me but I'm picking up on a vibe that's on them like they're the one that's putting the vibe out there that's their work to address and deal with and me reading into that vibe when nothing has been said or actually physically communicated is um is not my issue that's on them to deal with um and until they physically communicate that i i have to just continue to work on myself and continue doing my own thing because honestly i'm probably not even doing anything wrong
0: right i totally feel that because I find myself, you know, going off vibes and just almost fishing for things all the time of like, what's wrong, what's wrong? And then you're like poking and prodding that person and they're like nothing. You know what I mean? Sometimes it is just nothing. Um, And so it, it really is hard to pull back and just be like, focus on you. Like if there is a problem, we're all adults, they will speak up, you know?
1: Well, and I can't stand the idea of a relationship ending because it was my fault. And that's something I've had to really confront too. So if I can do things like bring dinner, feel out vibes or ask them what's wrong, be proactive about it, then I've done everything in my power to make sure that that's not my fault. But again, number one, who is that for? Is that for me or is that for them? And are there better, more tangible ways and things that I can do to show myself that it's not my fault? Mm -hmm. Like, how can I be? I like to use the word Mm self-compassionate in this moment because like I love other people so well, but I have to learn to like myself
0: because I don't
1: like myself. So how can I show myself love? Because that's going to be the only way that I realize that, no, this isn't my fault. But then two, like, again, that's their work to do. Everybody has internal work that they need to do, things that they need to work on their own coping mechanisms that's life we're humans we all have mm-hmm. them and so if they don't if they if there's some sus vibe and i look at my own energy and i don't feel it's coming from me and it's coming from them i need to give them the space to allow them to work on that and right. so instead of saying are you mad at me why do you hate me what did i do wrong A better question to ask if I really want to get into that conversation, that headspace with them might be, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, What's been going on recently? Mm -hmm. And then that gives them the space to allow them to talk about maybe what's going on. Odds are it has nothing to do with me. Mm
0: -hmm. But if it did, then
1: I've opened the door for them to communicate that and to clear that expectation. Definitely.
0: Definitely. I feel like we talked a little bit about this when I was on your podcast, too, but and I don't know if the word the right word is selfish, but just like sometimes I feel like type twos in us caring so much about the relationship, like in that situation when we're asking them, like, what did I do? Is it my fault? We're kind of not giving them the space to actually hear what's wrong with them because it might not be about Mm -hmm. us at all. But it's almost so easy for us to make everything about us, and we have to fix it when really it's like something else is totally differently going on with them, and they need you know to listen. But we're just worried about well, what what am I doing? What am I doing? You know? So yeah, I think selfish or
1: martyr mentality is a good martyr. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, twos and stress go to type eight as well and take on that walls up very, icy, very like,
0: mm-hmm. well, I can't
1: fix it. So what am I going to do now? Kind of yeah. attitude. Um, it's not up to us to save the world. Um, actually, the core sin of a type two or the deadly sin, because each Enneagram number has a deadly mm-hmm. sin, is pride. Because twos think they can take on the world and do everything themselves,
0: And they
1: don't allow other people to help them or they don't give people the space to like talk about how they
0: feel. Um, And it's because we're very self-minimizing of our own feelings and thoughts. So would you describe those deadly sins for each number kind of like almost the thing that would destroy them in Mm -hmm. a sense, okay. Yeah, so
1: it really just depends um, on your type, what that would be. For me specifically, it was the um like the people pleasing mm-hmm. um i think my pride is a like
0: coping mechanism mm-hmm. of that definitely i almost think pride is also a huge wall we put up to our mm-hmm. very very fragile hearts you know what i mean like and we don't want to come off like we need anybody but we do like we're human right. so I just feel like type twos are such a paradox of like, yeah. <laughs> we come off like we don't need anyone's help, but what we really want is their love. Like it's just, yeah. Uh, it's well, very, we associate right. them as the same thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing I really wanted to get into into with you today is you mentioned it earlier about type twos in the church. Um, so I kind of uh, yes. want to hear your experience with that because I know you're now in like a new church setting. So You know, how have you, you know, worked all that out with yourself?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in the church. Um, I've been to a bunch of different denominations. Um, I found a home in the Methodist church specifically. Um, But, you know, grew up very conservative, grew up very like going to church all the time. Like that was my big Mm -hmm. social activity. Um, And, you don't realize how much it like messes with your head until you're like out of it a little bit, which I feel like is a bit of a paradox because the thing is, is that I work for a church now. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's weird, but basically I was a youth pastor at a very traditional, like pushing the bill. But like when I say traditional church setting, I mean like They did Sunday mornings, whatever. Our pastor was super cool. We loved him. Um, But then our church campus decided that they were going to sell the property so that we could start something new because what we were doing wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so new pastor came in, his name's Chris. um, And we started working together. And instead of doing youth ministry, my role shifted to the director of community engagement. Um, But basically like our church's goal is to reach people who are anti or apathetic towards church. And even reach people like that sounds like very churchy language, which mm-hmm. even though we are a church is something we are not, we are not churchy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one of our like, our thing by when I say like reach people, I mean, like, we just want to get to know people for where they are. Like, right. One of the things that we say is that we're in each other's lives. And we genuinely mean that, like, I want to know you, I want to know your story, I want to talk mm-hmm. about um, what your journey is looked like, I want to help, I want to help you stop coping and start healing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's very affirming and positive and loving to everyone of every religion, no matter what you believe, which is very different than most traditional churches that I have been in growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, But being in this kind of setting and working with Chris really forced me to confront some of my own issues with the church. You know, as a Christian, one of the realities that we accept is that we if we claim that we believe in God like we believe that you know when a child gets raped that God was there God was present in the room he saw it and did nothing about it so how are we supposed to like deal with that because it's those kinds of things that are pushing other people away and I think something that a lot of Christians do is they run from those harder conversations because it's not as comfortable or fluffy and it's not the we mm-hmm. all go to heaven when we die conversation. Mm-hmm. it's a it's a much harder, much harsher reality um, sure. about who God is and where we come from. And so, you know, kind of taking all that into account, I realized that we talked met earlier about my people pleasing self- minimizing. well, I did that for the church for a very long time, and that led to some emotional abuse, some um, trauma from church being in people's sex lives when they shouldn't have been um, Mm -hmm. that I really needed to confront and deal with and actually wrestle with the fact that like bad things happen to everyone, including Christians. Like I'm not exempt from bad things happening to me because I believe in God. And also not only do bad things happen, but God sees these bad things happen and maybe doesn't do anything about it. And so how am I going to deal with that? And so being in a space where I've been able to like really process and do my own work about how I feel about the church, how I feel about God, um, one of Chris's big things was a challenge to me to be angry at God for what happened. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard that before. I was like, what? Like, no, I've never been angry at God. Why are you asking Mm -hmm. me that? And his response was like, we have a God that loves us so much that he's big enough for us to beat up on his chest. Like, Mm -hmm he can take it like, and also you're not being honest with him about how you feel if you're minimizing it. And so I started and it was rough. I was yelling a lot. Like I was pretty sad. And now I'm, as I continue to do that work, there are days where I still feel very angry at God for some of the things that I went through, but there are a lot more days where I feel like I have found new life and freedom and healing, and I'm not people pleasing. And I'm actually projecting my own thoughts into the world and I feel loved and supported and cared for. And the fact that I can now hold these things in balance, like that changes the game for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's kind of like the short version of my story with the church, but it's definitely not a sunshine, rainbows, butterflies Mm -hmm. place that all these Christians want to hype it up to be. And also I'd like to take this time to say that if you're actively in the church And the only thing that you're concerned about is where people go when they die. You're missing the point. Mm. So like maybe stop, maybe stop with that. Like if you're telling people that their souls or their salvation is on the line, if they don't come to your church or participate in your thing, Mm. that's not a church, it's a cult and you need to stop. Like Mm. you are missing so much of the power and the beauty of what can happen in the church when that's
0: what you're focused on. And it's that behavior that pushes people away definitely thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, I love the vulner- vulnerability um, I definitely um, during my you know journey with deconstructing the church, it definitely one thing I learned was being angry with God too and setting aside kind of like where my beliefs are with God now at that time like I realized like you know whatever is there like if me being angry at him or me processing my emotions is too big for him, then like he's not the God they've told me he is. Right. So I allowed myself to be angry and um, you know, just express my emotions because you're not gonna move past them until you do. Um right. and I think a lot of it is that, you know, that fear aspect of, you know, people are so set on just like wanting to go to heaven and not wanting to displease God and it's, like, showing your emotions, if that displeases God, like, we have a bigger issue, <laughs> you know what I mean, mm-hmm. so. Right. Um, yeah, I definitely agree on that, for sure. Yeah. Um, How was, um, kind of, go, like, getting back into church, like, with your new, um, kind of, church with Chris, how have you felt differently than, you know, growing up?
1: So, I think one of the, like, easiest examples of this is people like when you're in a more traditional church setting people will always say like oh I go to bible study to talk with people that feel similarly to me so that I can grow my faith and one of the biggest shifts for me has been oh I walk into bible study and everybody looks differently thinks differently feels differently than I do and that's how I'm growing my faith mm. it it's way less about like being like
0: Almost like See, fitting a mold is, and more yeah. just f- figuring out who you are and getting through that shit. Like
1: Right. And like, it's, the thing is, is like oh, a lot of what shifted is like, instead of saying what I want, think people want to hear or like giving myself the easy churchy biblical answer, I'm starting to now wrestle with the harder biblical truths that I have to come to terms with if I'm going to claim that I'm a Christian and having actual discussions about my own shit and the stuff I need to work through mm-hmm. and being honest and owning up to those things. So like, for example, a lot of times when you're in the church, they'll talk about like holding people accountable and that mm-hmm. holding people accountable usually comes with very churchy answers. Like, I'm gonna hold you accountable to praying every single day because Mm -hmm. prayer is an important part of blah blah blah. And this is like (laughs) this
0: is triggering my fight or fight right now. Like for like teenage Bible study.
1: (laughs) Right. I'm not. I'm not saying that's not important. Like Mm -hmm. to some people, prayer is a very important part of their faith journey. And for me, prayer looks a lot different than like traditional sitting with my hands folded and talking to God. Like I talk to God when I'm outside by just like in my thoughts. It doesn't have to be this churchy, like tie it up with a bow on it kind of mindset. And so that's what a lot of people will say, like mean, when they're talking about holding people accountable for me, because I almost said it's like, there's no accountability, but that's not true because there is, but the things I'm accountable to now are showing up and being my most present whole self. It's bringing my full self to the table. It's, um, allowing myself like looking at little Courtney who was hurt by her dad and her parents divorce and seeing that people pleasing coping mechanism and giving that little girl a hug and allowing her to spiral and feel how she feels because even though she knows it's spiraling, like sometimes th- those emotions have to be released in some way mm-hmm. accountability is going to the boxing gym and giving myself an outlet it's actively confronting my own shit it's mm-hmm. not oh we're going to make sure that you're praying 5 times a day and not saying the fuck word like yeah. that's not what it is <laughs> and i think that people like mix these two things because one seems very fluffy and comfortable and easy and the other and virtuous. is a lot harder Mm-hmm. Right. This is
0: virtuous and good. This is also virtuous and good, but it's way harder. For sure. Yeah, I think I love how you mention how the accountability changes, um, because I think a lot of people and a lot of the problems in the church come from like, they kind of demonize humanness so much and you want to be so much like God to where they forget we are still humans. Like, we need mm-hmm. therapy. We need to go to boxing as an outlet. Yeah. We need to, you know what I mean? Like, it can't just be praying five times a day. And because you checked off those boxes, your anxiety is going to go away. Like, you know, it's right. going to take that deeper work, and that's okay as well. So yeah. I love that. Prayer's great and all, but uh, prayer's
1: not going to keep you from getting anxious in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I. It's so crazy to think back to the days of, like, being in, like, you know, the cringy Bible studies of just, like, it's, like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, texting each other and being, like, I saw what you posted on Instagram and, like, you really shouldn't wear a bikini like that. You know what I mean? Like, that is not going to get you anywhere. (laughs) I'm of the opinion that the church needs to get the hell out
1: of people's sex lives. Honestly. um, Because I don't think they do a good job. I don't think we have – the appropriate resources to actually help people in that area. I don't think we, um, in general, are people in general, not even just Christians, but people in general have a hard time with hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not like that's something you have to actively work at. You have to actively work at genuinely listening. We call them our core axioms at Kindred, but like mm-hmm. things like making requests, not demands, bringing your whole self to the conversation um, asking questions with curious empathy. Like these are things that do not come naturally to human beings. Not at all. There's something you have to actively work at and work on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say everywhere, but in the church, especially like we want to talk about these really sensitive things, but we haven't built up the skills to do so in a way that is helpful. For sure. And so, again, we end up pushing people away and making them sign things like purity pledges Mm -hmm. because it's easier to talk about the black and white Well, the Bible says this than it is to actually confront
0: why we feel the way we feel. That's true. I really like, I have respect for the fact that you guys understand that like tough conversations like that take time and you guys are like figuring out what it takes to build that muscle instead of you know, just feeling like you need to nose dive into those conversations to have right. almost control over it. And you know what I mean? Like um, major respect for that in the church environment. So yeah, that's what we actively do in our disciple
1: groups. They're not Bible study groups so much as they are like intentional groups of five to six people that both want to help other people process through their stuff, as well as be given the space to process through their own. So in those groups, like It's a 12-week commitment. You set learning goals. You actively are practicing listening to somebody process and then asking them questions with curious empathy and making requests, actually talking about when you feel misheard or misrepresented about something. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I'm really excited and proud to be a part of. Um, I love that I get to help people do that every day and give people the space to do that. Um, I mean, if that's ever something y'all are interested in, we (laughs) do have options. To participate in any of our stuff virtually too um so i can definitely ali send you some links for
0: anybody that for sure. wants to know more yeah and i'm sure like when you guys have those conversations things can get pretty deep um so how do you guys kind of create that space for people to process all that so i think i mean that's a great
1: question uh, So I have two answers for you. The first is in like our like regular non-disciple groups, like our our Bible studies, our hangouts, our dinners, our events, like um, we're actively keeping our core axioms in the back of our mind. So, you know, we want to make requests, not demands. Like if I'm having a conversation with you, um, there's a big difference in saying, hey, can you please turn the music down? And what the hell? Why is the music so loud? Hmm. Which is a a very surface level example of that, but one comes from a place of like, hey, this is. They both come from places of I'm uncomfortable and I don't like this. One gives the other person the space the space to actually do and say how they feel about it, and the other is very demanding. It's very like I'm going to be in control. I have to da da da. Um, asking questions with curious empathy, like genuinely trying to listen to understand. The other person rather than listening to respond. Um, a lot of times it's a lot easier to think about what we're going to say next or try to fix the problem for the other person. That's not what people want. Bringing your whole self to the conversation. That means even when it's hard, like actually truly showing up and you know admitting when you don't know something, which is another thing I think the church needs to get better at. I think a lot of people in the church when they don't know things will like, plant their feet in the ground and become more firm in their point and very defensive. Very
0: true. And it it doesn't have to be that way. Like, it's okay to not know everything. I definitely totally (sighs) agree with that. And I'm still working on being okay with not knowing things. Um, Because I think back to when John and I first started dating and we'd have conversations about church – Um, Because even though I was out of the church, I feel like I still had to defend those beliefs almost. And so when we would have conversations, I would just, you know, plant my feet firmly and be like, no, this is it. And he's just like, you know, I would get so defensive. Um, So I definitely still am recovering from that. Um, And I think it's so interesting because I know the church kind of portrays themselves you know, like when something goes wrong, they say the church is full of, it's not for people who are perfect. It's for people who are hurting. Um, but then when, you know, something is brought to their attention, they act like they know everything. So it's just this constant cycle of, you know, you're saying you're imperfect, but then you feel like you have to know everything and be perfect about every conversation. And that's just not how it works. You just don't, and (laughs) you can't know everything. And if you're claiming that you do,
1: You're misrepresenting the truth. You're misrepresenting yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's not actually helpful for anyone to do that. Um, And that, you know, that comes from a place of owning another axiom of ours, speaking humbly for yourself and not speaking for anyone else. So I can talk for me and how I feel, but I can't tell you how you feel. Yeah. Um, Or also owning responsibility for your feelings. You can feel however you want to feel but you're responsible for those feelings. So if I feel angry, guess what? That's on me. That's not on you. I'm allowed to feel that way, but you are not making me angry.
0: Yeah. And I think that's hard as a type (laughs) two to like, for me, sometimes when like, this is something I'm working on right now, is just like being okay with like my emotions and thoughts, because I Mm -hmm. tend to beat myself up for those because as a type two, you almost want to keep this like angelic persona. So everyone likes you. So when it's like, I'm angry, I see that as like, I'm a mean, terrible person. And it's like, no, you're just experiencing anger right now. And that's okay. And that's very hard for me. I think it's hard. And I'm speaking for myself
1: here. Um, Like, one of the biggest things that I had to come to terms with is, like, I love others so well, but I don't fucking like myself. Mm. And I say it that aggressively on purpose. Um, I feel that deeply. (laughs) Like, Mm. and, like, saying that out loud is very difficult and very hard, but it's also, like, oddly therapeutic and freeing because it gives me the permission to actually question, one, why I don't like myself. But two, like, gives me the space to feel that Mm -hmm. and to not feel like I have to put on a mask or I have to continue to beat myself up. It gives me the compassion, again, for my inner child, for Courtney, who has all her trauma and people-pleasing coping Mm -hmm. mechanisms. Like, I was taught by my own past that I wasn't supposed to like myself and that I was only supposed to love other people. And so after years and years and years and years of doing that, I just, I don't, I don't like myself. It's something I'm actively working on. Um, and I would say that I like myself more now than I did even a year ago. Um, but showing myself love and compassion becomes difficult, especially if I feel like
0: I am in the wrong or I messed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so much easier to focus on you and how you're feeling than mm -hmm. it is to talk about me. Definitely. It's so hard to own those emotions and sit with that and also not try and fix it right away too. Cause I'm, I'm the, as much as I try and fix other people quickly, I try and do it to myself too. And not everything is fixable in, in a night. So, right. Do you feel like your fitness journey has helped you on that journey of liking yourself more? 100%. So
1: I have lost 45 pounds
0: over the course of a
1: year. Thank you. Um, and you know, my mom was always like, you got to try Weight Watchers. You got to try this. You got to try it. You got to try it. And I finally was like, okay, I'm going to try it. And the reason I made that decision was because I had said to myself, okay, this is a tangible way that I can show myself self-care and self-love. like." doing this like mm-hmm. deciding i'm going to lose weight and deciding that i'm going to like become healthier the only person that can do that for myself is me mm-hmm. no one else can do it for me i can't do it for anybody else i can only do it for myself and so it's going to be up to me to set boundaries to stick up for myself to um not be afraid of prioritizing how i feel and it was hard <laughs> like mm-hmm. when i first started you know, like I go out with my friends a lot and like, they would all want to drink and hang out. And I would too sometimes, but like I had to set limits and parameters on myself because I had goals in mind. And so it was like, okay, I'm not going to drink at this party because I want to drink this weekend. And so I'm going to, you know, Mm -hmm. balance that out or um, even simple things like making substitutions, like Okay, I can go to Chick fil A, but I'm going to get the grilled chicken nuggets instead of the fried chicken nuggets because I know the grilled is going to make me feel better. Now, there's nothing saying I can't have the fried nuggets if I want to mm-hmm. use my points on those, but it was all about what I wanted to use my points on, when I wanted to use them, how. So I loved it because it was a very easy, tangible way to set boundaries for myself, to stick up for myself. It taught me a lot about like, even simple things like, okay, I know that I need eight to nine hours of sleep a night in order to like be a well-rested, happy, healthy person. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make sure that I'm in bed at 11 the best I can every night. And like just setting myself up for success and consistency like has really bled over into a lot of my other relationships and a lot of other areas where it's more difficult to set those boundaries
0: definitely how has your journey been with getting to sleep on time because i feel like i struggle so much with that like that's kind of on the bottom of my list of things to work on because it it's so hard for me i don't know why i'm a night owl but um how has that helped you so a couple of things number 1 um
1: i follow jordan syat on instagram i love him i love his content but one of the biggest things that he taught me is that sleep is one of the most important parts of any weight loss journey, any health journey. Um, It should be second to nutrition. That's how important it is. Like Mm. it's, it's insanely important. And so something I learned about myself, I'm a very routine driven person. And so it wasn't so much about okay, my eyes are going to be closed and I will be fast asleep at this time. Like that didn't work for me because I was a night owl at first too. Now I've adjusted, but Mm -hmm. when I first started, like I would stay up till two, three in the morning on a regular basis. And so what I found to be the most successful was, okay, what time would I ideally like to be in bed? Not what time do I want to be asleep? What time do I want to be in bed? For me, the answer was 10 because I have to get up at seven. So I was like, okay, so starting at nine o'clock I am going to do all the things I need to do to get ready for bed. And I literally wrote it out. I need to wash my face before I go to bed. I need to let the dog out before I go to bed. Mm -hmm. I need to, um, you know, put on essential oils on the bottoms of my feet before I go to bed. I need to, like, there's a whole checklist. And every night I would do that routine in order. The other big thing that I think really made a difference was after nine o'clock, I do not use my cell phone. So That's we get so fucking hard in for me. <laughs> to the, right. And so my trade off with myself, because that was tough for me too, was, and you know, I finally allowed myself to re download TikTok onto my phone, but the rule is I can't watch it in bed um, uh-huh. because I know it'll keep me up. So if I want to watch TikToks, I can watch them on the couch, but I'm not going to watch them in bed. Um, the trade off for me was okay. I'm not going to be on my phone from nine to 10, but I can have the TV on because what the phone was, was really just a distraction to keep Mm -hmm. me from my own thoughts, um, rather than like for fun. Like -hmm. I would just scroll because I wanted to not have to think about my own anxiety and my own issues. Mm -hmm. And so the TV kind of counteracted that because it was far away. I could turn the volume down. It was something that I could like use as a distraction. Um, but it wasn't taking like my brain active effort to think about what I needed to do.
0: And then I also highly
1: suggest following your chronotype, um, which if you don't know what What that that is, I'm going to, I'm going to send you the link. Okay. Um, But it's another test. Uh, There's four chronotypes. Everybody is one of them, but basically it gives you like an ideal sleep schedule Mm. and an ideal like daytime routine. So I'm a bear chronotype, which means that I rise and wake like I sleep in, Wake up with the sun, so like mm-hmm. I learned that like my ideal sleep window is from eleven to seven. I should have lunch around noon, and I should have I can have two coffees a day, one between nine thirty and eleven thirty and one between one thirty and three thirty and if it's after one of those windows, I ain't doing it
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that's been really helpful too, because maybe you are naturally a night owl, and that's okay. Just adjust your schedule accordingly,
0: right. What would you say, because I feel like I'm this type of person too, um, to people who almost get overwhelmed with like how much their health journey can spiral into different changes to where it gets overwhelming, like, you know, changing your sleep schedule and finding out your different types and like, that's all good and it will come. But like, what would you say to someone who's looking too much at the bigger picture and getting overwhelmed? What's kind of, you know, their first steps of... Getting into a so healthier it lifestyle. it really
1: depends on what your goal is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to talk from a weight loss goal because that was mine. Mm-hmm. And so I was really overwhelmed at first. And one of the big reasons why I didn't do it sooner is because, again, being a type two, for me, starting Weight Watchers and taking control of my own health, this is, I roll my eyes every time I say this out loud, felt like a big sacrifice mm-hmm. because giving up like being able to eat whatever I want and going out to eat all the time meant that I couldn't spend all that time investing in other people.
0: That's such a, that's such an old Courtney thing to say. Courtney, uh-huh. now I know you wouldn't ever say that, but it's,
1: I look back on myself and I'm like, what, why would I? I don't want to eat healthier because i'm genuinely concerned that it's going to affect my relationships with other people that's insanity and i use the word sacrifice specifically because that's what it felt like it felt like by prioritizing myself i was making a sacrifice and that script needed to be flipped so for me when i first started i needed the structure So a lot of people will do calorie counting, um, but I highly, highly, highly recommend Weight Watchers. If you aren't looking to lose weight, you can set it to um, like a maintenance mode and just Mm -hmm. track, but it kept it really simple. I didn't have to think about it. Now I don't even use the app, and I know points for things, and I can kind of like track that in my head. But starting there will give you something tangible to actually like work on. Um, And it's easier than just trying to do it yourself, I found, because having a system and having something that I, like, was tracking and, like, watching, like, it just simplified everything, so I Mm -hmm. didn't have to stress about it. Definitely.
0: Yeah. I love watching your journey on Instagram. I'm going to put your Instagram in the show notes um, because you have your fitness one as well, but I don't know. Just, like, your glow with everything, like, it motivates me because – Um, I actually wrote down my goals and sent them to my friend the other day. She's going to like – we're kind of going to be each other's accountability partners. um, I love it. Just because – my goal is to, my long-term goal is to have um, less painful periods because I've been there before when my health was at its best, but with COVID and everything, it's just taint. And I was using that as an excuse for a while. Like definitely, you know, it was a hard year, but now I'm like, I can't keep feeling shitty. Um, So that's my long-term goal. But my short-term goal is to just have the energy for the new things coming up in life, like moving and things like that. So I'm going to be focusing on the food I'm eating, making sure I move every day, and then water because I've just been lacking all of that. So seeing how good you feel makes me be like, I can do this. (laughs) So for me and how
1: I would answer the food thing, again, I'm going to push Weight Watchers, um, not because anyone needs to lose weight, but just for the structure. I also really like the Lose It app and tracking calories and protein um, because if you track calories and protein everything else will fall into place um so that's what I'm doing now I did Weight Watchers for a year and loved it um now I'm kind of shifting to more maintenance and body recomposition and not weight loss so I'm doing calories instead um moving every day find something you love for me that was boxing and so like once I figured out because like moving every day doesn't sound like that daunting of a task, except for if you freaking hate the thing that you're doing, Yes, it's never going to happen. And so I was someone who hated working out, who hated, like I couldn't run a mile, like me either. It wouldn't (laughs) be me. You can miss me with that. And so I tried boxing and that's been so great, just like mentally too, because it's a mental release as much as it is a physical release. But that could be any number of things for you. It could be Mm -hmm. dance. It could be going on
0: walks. It could be I don't know, Zumba, it could be running. It could be I yoga,
1: whatever that is.
0: Yes, my yoga and I just bought a trampoline and I've been doing like trampoline I workouts that. like <laughs> That's
1: amazing. So like find something you love. And then yeah. with the water, my biggest trick for that and I swear by this was I when I first started weight watchers, one of my big goals was I need to be drinking a gallon of water a day. So I bought myself a water bottle. I bought myself a Hydro Flask. Yes, I I love a Hydro Flask. (laughs) I got it in the exact color I wanted. I got the exact lid I wanted. I got stickers for it and I made it really cute. And that motivated me to drink the water. Mm -hmm. Because if I was going to invest money in my water bottle, I was going to use it.
0: Yes. And then,
1: so I I swear by that trick, like get yourself a water bottle, make it
0: cute. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I when I bought my Hydro Flask, John was like, "Did you just spend forty dollars on a water bottle?" I'm like, "It matters. The water bottle <laughs> matters. Like, it has yep. to be cute. It has to be like easy to drink. Like, that's the yep. only way I can do it." So, yep, that's my sure. that's my biggest
1: trick. Get yourself a water bottle you actually
0: like. Yes. Well, I've loved having this conversation with you. Yes. I, I just love our energy together. We can just get hyped up about the same things. It's um, great. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Do you want to share the places where people can find you on Instagram?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Courtney J. Young or uh, choosing Courtney with two Ys. Um, And then if you're interested in any Kindred content, Enneagram content, anything like that, um, we host the Kindred Spirits and Enneagram podcast everywhere you get podcasts. Um, And then you can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at Kindred
0: Awesome. I will put those in the show notes as well for anyone who would like to go check Courtney out. Highly suggest it um, and leave a rating or review if you enjoyed this episode. And thank you again, Courtney, so much. You'll probably be on here again in the future. (laughs) Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon.